0: Exodus chapter 4, passage for us. Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. Throw it on the ground, he said. So Moses threw it on the ground, it became a snake, and he ran from it. The Lord told Moses, stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. So he stretched out his hand, caught it, and it became a staff in his hand. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. In addition, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. So he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, his hand was diseased, resembling snow. Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent. Either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go. I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Moses said, Please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, Isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well, and also he is on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do. He will speak to the people for you. He will serve as a mouth for you, and you will serve as God to him. And take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. This is God's word for us this morning. Please be seated. In a psychology today article entitled When We Don't Feel Enough, therapist Danielle Termod argues that not feeling good enough is like looking in a mirror that is clouded and does not give us a clear image of what we're seeing or who we are or who we are. And she goes on to say that while many people struggle with feelings of inadequacy, that there is hope, and that hope. It's words of self-affirmation. In other words, when we are feeling inadequate, what we should do, she suggests, is that we should say positive and affirming things to ourselves that will encourage us about ourselves. And then she gives the following advice. She says, participate in self-affirmation activities. A simple activity you can do might involve writing positive notes to yourself on sticky notes that can be placed somewhere that you will see them often. This can include quotes or spiritual passages that are meaningful to you positive affirmations surrounding your strengths affirmation like you can do blank to remind you of your potential other encouraging notes whatever you write should be personally meaningful to you and help remind you of your positive characteristics strengths abilities accomplishments and values now while i agree that endlessly entertaining negative thoughts about ourselves is very emotionally damaging can be very emotionally damaging and there is something to be said for us thinking positively, I I do have some concerns about Termod's advice here. For one thing, there there really are just many situations in life for which we are not adequate. What do I mean by that? I mean that there are uh, just simply many things in this life that we will not be able to do. Why? Because we're limited creatures, and speaking words of affirmation over ourselves will not change the fact that we have very real limitations. And so it's simply true that there will be many activities that we simply will not be able to be successful at. Sometimes we fail the test, or we don't get into the college that we wanted to get into, or we don't make the sports team, or we don't get the promotion at work. We are all limited, and part of humility before God is acknowledging that both our strengths and our limitations are from Him, and they are part of His good plan for our lives. More particularly as Christians, though, I believe we have a better resource when we feel inadequate than words of self-affirmation. Actually, in the Bible, nowhere are we encouraged to speak words of self-affirmation to ourselves. Instead, in the Bible, we're told to think about ourselves with a sober judgment which means we're supposed to know ourselves. We're actually supposed to know where God, by His grace, has made us strong and has given us gifts, and we're supposed to know those parts of our lives and areas of our uh, personality where we actually have limitations and weaknesses, and we're supposed to acknowledge that all of that is from God. All of that is a part of His providential plan for our life. And so we are not told to look to our own potential or to give ourselves words of self-affirmation. Instead, we're supposed to, we're told to look to God who is the one who makes us adequate to do all that He has called us to do. You know, the hope the Bible gives us is found in God who's able to help us. So our adequacy does not come from ourselves. It comes from God who is both with us and for us in Christ. I hope that's something you understand about your relationship with God through Jesus, is that because you're in Christ, God is for you. We sang about that. That's more than a song. That's true of you this morning, that God is for you in Christ. In our passage for study this morning, it's very interesting. Moses is focused on his own inadequacy. But you notice God doesn't ever speak to him and say, hey, Moses, really, you're thinking about this wrong. This, this is your potential. Look at all the amazing things that you have done or that you can do. And God doesn't encourage Moses to speak words of self-affirmation over his life. What does God do? Instead, God points Moses to himself and says, I will be with you and I will help you and I will teach you what you should do and what you should say. Again, God reminds Moses that God would be Moses's sufficiency. And that is the most hopeful thing of all Because if you belong to God, it means that He is your sufficiency for all He has called you to do in this life. And finally, God is all Moses would need. And brothers and sisters, finally, God is all we need. Is our sufficiency. We'll see that as we look at this passage this morning. We're continuing our study in the book of Exodus. Uh, last time we looked at chapter three, the whole chapter, verses one to twenty-two, and, and we saw God begin to commission Moses to be the one that He would send to lead the people of Israel out of their slavery in Egypt. And we saw that Moses, who had spent the last forty years as a lowly shepherd uh, in in Midia, he didn't feel like he was the guy. He didn't feel qualified to go. He began to make excuses. He asked, who am I that I should go to Pharaoh, that I should lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt? But again, God does not respond to Moses by pointing out all of his qualities and all of his characteristics and abilities. Instead, God pointed Moses to himself as the one who would be with him and who would be for him. Now, you would think that having studied what we studied last week, that Moses would be now excited about going forward and doing what God had commanded him to do. But in verses 1 to 17 of chapter 4, uh, you see that that it wasn't the case, Uh, that what God had said to him in chapter 3 was not enough, that Moses still had doubts. And we see that Moses continues to make excuses for why he should not be the one who would go and do what God had commissioned him to do. But we also see in this chapter, and I hope this is encouraging to you as well this morning, we see the amazing patience of God, how God bears with his reluctant prophet. How God helps his reluctant prophet even as he bears with him until Moses is ready to obey. If you're taking notes, we're going to study this passage using three points this morning, which are really three more glorious truths about God. So three truths about God from Exodus chapter 4, verses 1 to 17. First, God's power is abundant. We'll see that in verses 1 to 9. God's power is abundant. Second, we're going to learn that God's providence is wise. God's providence is wise. We'll see that in verses 10 to 12. And third, we're going to see that God's patience is long. And God's patience is long. We'll see that when we look at verses 13 to 17. Let's look at the first truth together. God's power is abundant. Take your copy of God's word again. Look with me, if you will, verses 1 to 9. Moses answered, What if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, The Lord did not appear to you? The Lord asked him, What is that in your hand? A staff, he replied. "'Throw it on the ground,' he said. "'So Moses threw it on the ground. "'It became a snake, and he ran from it. "'The Lord told Moses, "'Stretch out your hand and grab it by the tail. "'So he stretched out his hand and caught it, "'and it became a staff in his hand. "'This will take place,' he continued, "'so that they will believe that the Lord, "'the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, "'the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, "'has appeared to you. "'In addition, the Lord said to him, "'Put your hand inside your cloak. "'So he put his hand inside his cloak, "'and when he took it out, "'his hand was diseased, resembling snow.'" Put your hand back inside your cloak, he said. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, it had again become like the rest of his skin. If they will not believe you and will not respond to the evidence of the first sign, they may believe the evidence of the second sign. And if they don't believe even these two signs, or listen to what you say, take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. The water you take from the Nile will become blood on the ground. Now remember what we saw last week, verses 16 to 22 of chapter 3 the Lord had graciously told Moses what was going to happen when he went to Egypt. He, he gave him just a foretaste of what he would experience. He told them that the Israelites would believe that God had sent him. Uh, he told him that Pharaoh initially would reject the command. He would not obey the Lord. He would not let the people go. But after God uh, showed forth his power through his miracles, well, then Pharaoh would relent and he would let the people go. And then when the people of Israel left Egypt, God let Moses know that they would not go empty-handed, but instead they would go out with the the treasures of Egypt because God was giving them their back wages, as it were, for all their years of slavery. So even though Moses had some misgivings about his own suitableness, he says, who am I? Who am I that you should send me? I'm, I'm nobody, Lord. That's what he's saying. You would think that God, very God, speaking to him from the burning bush, telling him what would happen would make Moses excited and eager to go and obey God's command, but amazingly, it doesn't. Moses still had doubts. Look at verse 1. Moses answered, what if they won't believe me and will not obey me, but say, the Lord did not appear to you? Now, on one level, this is, a, you know, this is a pretty reasonable question that he's asking here. If I came into the service one Sunday morning and said, hey, God, guys, listen, God just appeared to me, and he told me that we all need to leave Williamsburg and move to New York. And he told me that I'm going to be the one to lead you there. Well, you could be forgiven if you had a few more questions about that. (laughs) More than that, consider who Moses was. Moses was the one who 40 years ago had sought to lead the people of Israel out, and they had not believed him, and they had not obeyed him, and they had not followed his leadership. It makes sense that Moses might be concerned that once again he would be rejected. But while it makes sense, notice that it fails at one crucial point, Moses is failing here to believe what God had just said. God had just told him that they would believe him. God has just told him that he would be with them. God just told him that he would be successful in this. Moses should have trusted God's word, should have obeyed. It, it would have been perfectly just, consider it. It would have been perfectly just for God to have been angry with Moses for his disbelief. That would have been completely Just. But instead, I want you to notice, because verses 2 to 9, in verses 2 to 9, what you really see there is just overflowing grace as God is dealing with his reluctant prophet, uh, helping him, strengthening him, encouraging him. In these verses, instead of rebuking Moses, God instead equips Moses with three signs or three miracles that he would perform that would demonstrate that God had truly sent him to the people of Israel. This would be proof for him. So verses 2 to 5, God tells Moses to throw his shepherd's staff on the ground. Uh, he does that. And when he does that, that staff turns into a snake. And it seems from Moses' response that it it's very likely that this was a poisonous snake. Uh, perhaps it was a cobra. Uh, why do we think that? Well, Moses ran from it. Moses was terrified. There's something dangerous about this. But then when God commanded him to grab the snake again and he does, what happens? It, it turns back into a staff. And in verse 5, God lets him know why he gave him this sign. He said, here's the purpose. This will take place, he continued, so that they will believe that the Lord, the God of their ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. But then look at verses 6 to 8. There's just kind of more grace overflowing here. God gives Moses a second miraculous sign. God tells him to put his hand in his cloak. And when he pulls it out, his hand is all of a sudden it's diseased and it's white. But then he tells Moses to put his hand back in the cloak, and when he pulls it out again, now all of a sudden the skin is restored. It's healthy like the rest of his skin, just like the rest of his body. In verse 8, God tells Moses that this second sign was to be used in case they didn't believe the first sign. So now Moses has more ammo to prove that he truly was sent by the God of Israel. Now look in verse 9, God goes even further. He gives Moses a third sign. If he says, if they won't believe the first or, or the second, when you get there, just take water from the Nile and pour it out, and it will turn into blood, proving to them that God had sent you. Now, what's the purpose of these three signs? Very clearly, God intended these three signs to be evidence for the people of Israel that he had indeed sent Moses to them so that they would be rescued from their bondage in slavery. But looking at the signs themselves, it's very clear that they also had a secondary purpose. So let's think about these signs just a little bit more as we work through them one by one. First, the cobra in ancient Egypt was the symbol of Pharaoh's power. Uh, The people of Egypt, they worshipped serpents as a source of wisdom, a source of healing. Uh, The king of Egypt, Pharaoh, he wore a headpiece that was of gold. It was shaped into the shape of a cobra. And the idea was that it was threatening the enemies of Egypt. Really, the Egyptians' fixation on serpents showed that their heart allegiance belonged to another serpent, a false god, who was Satan. But by changing Moses' staff into a serpent, and then back again, God was making a point that he has authority over the serpent. He's declaring himself that he has authority over the gods of Egypt, even over that ancient serpent, even over Satan himself. Second, many translations say that Moses' hand became leprous when he put it in the cloak and pulled it out. It's possible that it was leprosy. It's not entirely clear. It could also have been another skin disease like psoriasis or vitiligo. We're not sure. Still, the message of the sign was clear. The, the God who sent Moses didn't only have control over the physical elements, natural things like, like snakes, but he also had power over men and women. And he could cause them to be ill, or he could heal them from disease with equal ease. And he was totally in control. Third, the Nile River was the source of life and fruitfulness in Egypt. The Nile was a big deal. Apart from the Nile, Egypt itself, particularly upper Egypt, would have become something of a desert and a wasteland. But the Egyptians worshipped the Nile as the father of life and mother of us all. It was a big deal to them. But when Moses would turn that water into blood, or God would turn the water into blood, it showed that he had authority over the Nile as well. And so he could very easily destroy Egypt if he so chose. Now, you, you take these three miracles and you put them together, these three signs. What, what are they saying? They're saying that the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob was superior to the false gods of Egypt. And indeed, as we study through Exodus, we're going to see how he repeatedly makes a point, God repeatedly makes a point that he is superior and in charge of all of the false gods of Egypt. And of course, behind false gods are demons. There's a lot more we could say, but but I want us to highlight the power of God that we see in these verses. God's power is on display here. So just one observation for us. God's power is able to help us do all that God commands us to do. That's what we see. God's power is able to help us do all that God commands us to do. So Moses is afraid. He's afraid that the people of Israel will not believe him, that he will fail. But Moses didn't actually need to be afraid at all. Why? His fear was groundless because God was with Moses. And God's power, which is displayed in these three signs, is sufficient, more than sufficient, abundantly plentiful to do all that he was calling Moses to do. And God would help Moses to do all of these things. Yeah, these three miraculous signs were proof to the people of Israel that God had indeed sent Moses, and Moses himself would be successful. In the same way, isn't it true that we are often fearful in the Christian life? are there aspects of following God that we have fears and concerns about? Uh, like Moses, we wonder if we'll be able to do it. Why is that? Well, in those moments, we're fearful and we're afraid and we wonder if we're going to be able to follow and do the things that God has commanded us to do because we are looking at our own resources. That's why we're fearful. We're fearful because we're being realistic and we're looking at our inadequacy but we're forgetting something. We're forgetting that God is for us. We're forgetting that God is the all-powerful God. We're forgetting that God is able to and will indeed accomplish His work through us, that God's power is at work in us and through us so that we can accomplish all that He has commanded us to accomplish. So our brother Bill disc read about God's power that is at work in us earlier in the service from 2 Peter chapter 1. Let me read verses 3 and 4 again. This is what it says. His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything required for life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. By these he has given us very great and precious promises, so that through them you may share in the divine nature, escaping the corruption that is in the world because of evil desire. So Christ Fellowship, question for you. What do we lack when it comes to walking in obedience to all God has commanded us to do? What is it that we're lacking? Brothers and sisters, we're lacking nothing Because his divine power has given us everything we need for life, living in this world, living as he would have us live, and godliness, becoming like Jesus. It means that we lack nothing. That's an amazing, amazing verse. What a resource we have. Everything we need to live well for God is provided by God's power. Everything we need to become like Jesus Christ, it's provided for us by God's power. We have all that we need. Very practically, we have all that we need to obey all of God's commands. So we are commanded in the Bible to be sexually pure in an age that is sexually anarchist. We can do that. Why? Because God's power is at work in us. God commands us to live lives of thankfulness and not complaining. We can do that. Why? Because God's power in our lives is abundant. God commands us to spend time with Him through regular Bible study and prayer. And if you have walked with God for any period of life, you know that your flesh, that kind of remaining sinfulness within, hates that and would rather do anything than open God's Word and spend time with Him in meditation and reading and study and in prayer. But we can draw near to God. Why? Because God's power is sufficient and it's at work in us. God commands us to work hard on the job and not grow lazy, no matter what we do. Why? Why? because we're serving the Lord Christ. All we do is ultimately being done for him. We can do that. Why? Because God's power is at work in us. God commands us to die to ourselves and love our spouses and our children. If we're married and have children, why can we do that? Well, we can die to ourselves, which is a very real and very painful thing, because God's power is at work in us, and he can accomplish that good work in us and through us. God commands us to make disciples of Jesus Christ. Remember how we made the comparison between the commission that God had given Moses to go to slaves and tell them that he can set them free, that God will set them free and then lead them out. And we've been given this commission as well. It's the great commission where we go to people, men and women, boys and girls who are, who are in slavery to sin. And we tell them that through Christ, they can be set free from their slavery to sin. And sometimes we can be intimidated in that commission that we have been given, and yet we are able to do it. Why? Because God's power is at work in us. Brothers and sisters, the point is that God's power is abundant. And because God's power is abundant, we have all that we need. I love what Hudson Taylor said about this. He, he said, all God's giants were weak men who did great things for God because they reckoned that God was with them. Now you hear that? That's perspective. If we stop and we look at all that God's called us to do and we look at our own weakness and we're just focused on our own resources, every single one of us will go through the Christian life trembling and fearful. But if by God's grace, we look up and we see that God is a sovereign and omnipotent king who by his divine power has given us everything required for life and godliness, we can go through this life uh, buttressed and strengthened and confident and encouraged. And that's how we're called to live. Just think all through the Bible, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous, be strong and courageous over and over and over. Why? Because I'm with you. Now, those are the resources we have. God is the resource we have. God is with us. And that means we can accomplish great things. In the life of our church, one great thing we're hoping to do is build a new church building, and that's a huge task. We're, we're seeking God's grace to help us to build a new building where, Lord willing, the gospel will go forward not only in our time, but in coming generations, hopefully for decades, so that this will be a place where in 100 years, if the Lord is not returned, that the gospel will still be going forward. But if we look at our own power and our own resources very, very quickly, we're going to become discouraged. But we need to remember that we're not alone. And if, that, if God is in this, if God is guiding us in this way, we will not lack one thing that we need. His power is sufficient. And may God give us a, a faith-filled perspective. Who is God, right? He's the one who holds the cattle on a thousand hills. Uh, he's the one who holds the hearts of kings in his hands. So, uh, you know, kind of a mid-level government official is not going to be an obstacle to God in terms of getting... Permitting work that we need to build a house, build a, a house for Him, a, a church. God is able to make all things work together. He can give us strength. It really is a huge task, but it's achievable because our God is great. Well, looking at verses 1 to 9, we see that God's power is abundant. Look at verses 10 and 12. We see a second truth this morning God's providence is wise. God's providence is wise. But Moses replied to the Lord, please, Lord, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been speaking to your servant, because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. The Lord said to him, who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak, and I will teach you what to say. In verse 10, it's very clear that Moses is not done making excuses for why he should not go and obey God's command, why he should not be the, you know, he should not be the one that would lead the people out of slavery. You see, he rightly understood that confronting Pharaoh would require resources that he didn't think he really possessed. He knew that it would involve words and persuasive speech. And throughout his life, he had noticed that he had struggled with words. So while he does so with respect, he calls Yahweh Lord, the word that means master. Uh, He points God to his own insufficiency still. He says, I've never been eloquent either in the past or recently or since you've been speaking to your servant because my mouth and my tongue are sluggish. We don't know exactly what that means, that his mouth or his tongue was sluggish. It's possible that Moses had a, a speech impediment. I think that's likely. Perhaps he stuttered at times. It's not entirely clear. It could also mean that, that Moses didn't feel like he was you know, kind of quick enough on his feet to be able to answer all the objections that he would face when he had to confront Pharaoh. Either way, Moses' complaint is that he is not naturally equipped to do the task that God was calling him to do. And actually, if you notice it, Moses actually puts the onus on God for his own natural limitations. Notice what he says. He says, I've never been eloquent, either in the past or recently, or since you have been talking to your servant. And the idea is, well, God, if you really wanted to send me, you should have fixed my speech problem when you came to me, but you haven't. It indicates that I'm really not the guy for this job. Notice how God responds, though, in verses 11 and 12. Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind, right? It's echoes of Job almost, right? You hear the same kind of questions being asked. Is it not I, the Lord? Now go, I will help you speak and I will teach you what to say. Now those are, if you think about it, those are remarkable words because the Lord is taking responsibility for something uh, that, that if, if we're not thinking right, we can be somewhat troubled by, He takes full responsibility for the fact that some people are born with physical and mental limitations and handicaps. And he's not ashamed. He's not ashamed of the fact that some people are born deaf or mute or blind or with any other limitation. Why is that? Well, it's because God knows that he is wise. God knows that he is wise in his his kind of providential distribution of talents and abilities and limitations. God is wise in his divine orchestration of all that occurs, and that includes who we are with our strengths and with our limitations. And all of this is a part of God's good plan for history, God's wise plan for how all things will fit together. So Moses should do what? God says, now go, go and obey. Let me make one observation, give one encouragement from this. Here's the observation. God's providence is wise in all things, and that includes our own personal limitations and deficiencies. So look at verse 11 again. Look at what God says to Moses there. Who placed a mouth on humans? Who makes a person mute or deaf, seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? Now, this verse has so much to say to us when we struggle with discouragement and discontentment when we look at ourselves and we see those limitations, and inabilities that are part of who we are, things that we simply cannot change. It's very common for people to wish that they looked differently than they do. Uh, some people have blue eyes wish that they were brown or that they were green. Some people who are shorter wish that they were a bit taller. Some people who were thin wish that they were a bit more muscular. Many women struggle with body image, and they, and they wonder why God has given them the body that's the shape it is as opposed to some other shape. And they can become discouraged about that. But it's more than physical appearance, right? It's other aspects of who we are as well. It comes down to things like personality, things we'd like to change. But, you know, some people who are more introverted wish that they were a little more outgoing. Some of us wish we were more athletic, a little smarter. We wish we were born into a different family, different life circumstances, Some of us struggle with very real limitations that that other people don't have. Some people are born blind and deaf. Those are real limitations. Some people are are born with mental challenges and genetic disorders that, that cause them to struggle more. And they realize that they struggle more than others. And it's very easy for them to look around and wonder, why has God given me these limitations? And he hasn't given other people these limitations. And they wish that it could be otherwise I imagine every person sitting here has felt something like this at some point in your life as you've looked at your own limitations. So, what should we do? When we feel those thoughts, we should look at verse 11. Look at verse 11. We should remember that God's providence in our life is wise. Uh, the, the, the God who, who gives mouths to men and eyes. He's the God who has formed us precisely the way he wanted to with all of our strengths and abilities and all of our weaknesses and all of our limitations. And it's all a part of his plan and what he wants to do in us and through us. That God is wise and that he's good. So, brother or sister, don't be discouraged about how God has made you. Don't waste time or emotional energy about things that God has no intention of changing. Instead, trust him. Trust that he knows you by name. Trust that he knows the number of hairs on your head. Trust that your fingerprint, which are unique to you, are a gift from him. And he has an individual plan for you and who you are with your strengths and abilities and your weaknesses, and your limitations, and trust that he's good, and then seek him and serve him to the very best of your ability, listen, just as you are, with joy. Imagine what it will be like for everyone in this room on that day, that glorious day of resurrection, when we see who God has intended us to be for all eternity. We will be different on that day, but we will all be gloriously like Jesus. Brothers or sisters, we are not far from home, and we're going to see that day, and praise God for that. The encouragement from this passage is that our success in proclaiming God's word, particularly the gospel, is not dependent upon our eloquence. Moses was not an eloquent man in and of himself. I think he was giving a very accurate assessment of his abilities. I think he knew himself in this capacity, and yet God chose to give him a commission to take this message to Pharaoh and command him to let God's people go, even though Moses was not naturally eloquent. But how's it going to turn out? It's going to turn out well, because God's going to help him his mission would be successful. Now think about, again, the commission that we've been given to take the gospel to all nations, and sometimes we shrink back from sharing the gospel with our unsaved friends and family members and co-workers. Why? Because we think we're going to do a bad job at it. Uh, We think we're going to stumble over our words. We think we're not going to be able to clearly communicate the essential truth, and so we pull back from sharing the message. But what are we doing? We're forgetting that the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, that it's ultimately not a matter of our eloquence. It's a matter of the Holy Spirit of God taking His truth and piercing people's hearts with that truth so that they are in a moment transformed and they become a new creation in Christ because we've been faithful to share that very simple message with them, that message that is the power of God unto salvation. Now, we do have to share the gospel in a way that others can understand, but we need to remember once again that the issue is the message and not the messenger. The message is more important than the messenger. So if you're bad at sharing the gospel, just be faithful and trust God to help you. And just like anything else in life, as we do something more and more, we we get better at it, and God will help you get better at it. So do not let a fear of being inadequate or not eloquent enough keep you from sharing this message that has saved you and that has given you life. May God help all of us do that we think about the power of the gospel, let's also just consider the wonder of the gospel. And this is where we just get to kind of of drink in the glory of this simple message that saves. Think about it. We have, we possess the one message on earth that will bring spiritual life out of spiritual death. And what is this message? That there is a good and loving God who made us, who created us to to walk with him and have a relationship with him, uh, to know him and to be known by him. Our first parents, they sinned against this God. They decided it would be better for them to live for themselves and to pursue their own way. Uh, They decided it would be better to live as as kind of the kings and queens of their life, and we sinned in them, and because we've come from them, we've all inherited that same sinful nature, that, that nature that's kind of turned in on itself, so that we kind of most fundamentally take our lives and we say that our life's about me and it's about my glory and it's about pursuing my happiness. It's about being fulfilled in the ways that I want to be fulfilled. And if I'm not fulfilled, I'm just going to keep pursuing more and more until I'm fulfilled. And we, we take this life that is intended to be this glorious offering to God with whom we would know and love and walk, but instead we, we shrink it down into this very pathetic existence of one. And that's the nature of sin. That's what it does to all of us. That's what it's done to all of us. Every one of us sitting in this room, everyone in the world is infected by this plague of sin. And the Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, that no one is good enough for God, that no one's going to stand before God on the great and final day and say, hey, you know what? I was, better than, I was better than Oscar. I was kinder than he was, so you should let me into heaven. We think that way. We think if I'm 51% better than I am bad, God's going to be okay with that. That is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the only way to stand before God based on our own efforts is that we would be perfect as he is perfect that we'd be holy as he is holy. And none of us can do that. We've already all failed the test. So what hope is there? The hope is found in the wonder of this simple message that God has done for us what we could not do in sending the son, the eternal son of God came into this world, Jesus Christ. He came intentionally to live the kind of life we should have lived, fulfilling all righteousness, always obeying the will of his heavenly father, Loving others around him perfectly as he would be loved. He was living the life, friend, that you should have lived, but you failed to live. That I should have lived, but I failed to live. And then when the time was right, what does he do? He fixes his face towards Jerusalem. Why is he going to Jerusalem? He's going to Jerusalem to die. Why? Because he had to bear in himself on the cross the guilt of the sins of all who will turn from their sins and trust in him. He had to pay the price in his blood so that we could be washed clean. So that we could be accepted. And friend, you have to understand this very simple message is this this morning. If you will turn from your sins and put your trust in Christ and Christ alone, even now God will save you. Jesus will be your savior. All of your sins will be forgiven, past, present, and future. You will be covered, as it were, with the righteousness of Christ so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus's perfect life covering all of your failures. And you have to understand that this gift of love is offered to you this morning if you'll receive it. If you will turn from your sins and you'll put your trust in Christ, even now God will save you. And we're pleading with you, friend, do that this morning. Don't let another day go by where you hear about this amazing gift that's offered to you and yet you reject it because you think you're going to have a little more fun for a few more years before you get serious with God. Friend, you're not promised tomorrow. Today is the day of salvation. Put your trust in Jesus today. Oh, Christ Fellowship, think about the wonder that this is the message that we get to share, that we, that we have this message that can set people free from sin and death and hell through the power of God. May God help us be faithful and bold and courageous and trusting in the power of God to proclaim this message. And more and more, and may, may God help us not let our fear of our own inadequacy cloud our vision so that we don't proclaim Christ to others, and God can do it. Looking at verses 10 to 12, we see that God's providence is wise. More briefly now, a third truth. God's patience is long. Verses 13 to 17, God's patience is long. Moses said, please, Lord, send someone else. Then the Lord's anger burned against Moses and he said, isn't Aaron the Levite your brother? I know that he can speak well and also he's on his way now to meet you. He will rejoice when he sees you. You will speak with him and tell him what to say. I will help both you and him to speak and will teach you both what to do and he will speak to the people for you and he will serve as a mouth for you and you will serve as God to him and take this staff in your hand that you will perform the signs with. In verse 13 something happens. Moses runs out of excuses. He realizes that God is going to provide everything he needs to accomplish what God has called him to do, but there's one problem. You see, behind all of the excuses that Moses has marshaled and put forward, there's one ultimate reason why Moses is reluctant, and that's because at the end of the day, he simply didn't want to go. He simply didn't want to obey. Lord, please send someone else. The original language, it's just send the message by the hand of whomever you will. But don't send it by me. In verse 14, we see something happens. The Lord responds to Moses' continued disobedience with anger. I wonder, as one commentator suggested, I wonder if the fire in the bush kind of burned more brightly as God speaks now to Moses. I wonder if Moses realized that the Lord had become angry with him. The Lord of hosts is not a God to be trifled with. And yet notice again the amazing, overwhelming patience of God. Because what does God do? He could, have, he could have just immediately, you know, smote Moses with some plague for his disobedience. But instead, what does the Lord do? The Lord points Moses to Aaron, who just happened in the providence of God to be on his way to see Moses. And says, Aaron can speak well. And he will help you. And more importantly, he points Moses to Aaron and he says, I will help both you and him to speak and teach you both what to do. You see, the issue will not be Aaron's eloquence. The issue will be God's power at work through Moses and through Aaron. And God will perform the work. And Moses realizes at this point that God is not going to take no for an answer And so we see now this reluctant prophet, we will see the next time we study Exodus together, the reluctant prophet Moses began to walk in obedience to the Lord. And by God's grace, he will do so in amazing ways. The observation I want to make from verses 13 to 17 is that God's patience is long. And that's a good thing. Why? Because how often have we been like Moses? knowing that God has commanded us to do something, but not wanting to do it, not wanting to obey. We've begun making excuses for why we couldn't, when really at the bottom of it, the reason why we did not walk in obedience is because we did not want to. I could give many examples of this, as many as there are commands of the Bible. Let's just think about one command particular that I hope will be God's grace to us as a church as we think about it. Listen to this command to be regularly spending time with God and his word. Listen to this command. First Peter chapter 2 verse 2, like newborn infants desire the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow up into your salvation. Hunger for it, long for it, pursue it. Cry out for the pure milk of the word, why? So that by it you may grow up into your salvation, which is to say so that you can become like Jesus, so that you can become like the savior. But so many Christians, listen, so many Christians fail to establish this this habit of daily, of regularly spending time with God and His Word, in His Word throughout the week, and there are excuses that are given. I'm so busy during the day, I just, I don't have time. Whenever I open the Bible, I just get confused and bored, and I just close it. Uh, I can't spend time with God in the morning because I just, I need more sleep. Friends, listen, at the end of the day, those are just excuses that's what they are. And behind those excuses, there's something else or something deeper behind those excuses is the reality that we do not spend time with the Lord in his word in the way we know he has commanded us to, and we need to, because we don't want to. We would simply rather do something else more. Now, that's the truth. I wonder if you've made any of those excuses this week. I wonder if you've neglected time with the Lord and His Word because there was some other thing, some lesser thing that you wanted to do more. It's very possible. None of us does this perfectly. And yet, what is it that God wants in commanding us to spend time with Him and His Word? He wants to bless us, He wants to walk with us in intimacy. He wants to stop being a philosophical construct that we pull apart and put back together. And he wants to be the person that is at the center of our lives. He wants to use his word, which is the bread of heaven. And he wants to strengthen us spiritually so that we can walk in obedience. Friend, if you're struggling with obedience to God and you're not in God's word, I can tell you why. Because you're starving. And starving people don't have strength. So may God help us by faith, look at his word for what it is and stop making excuses and instead pursue God and at the same time think about it. Isn't it amazing how patient God is with us? Isn't it amazing that he just bears with us as we kind of stiff arm him over and over and over and he bears with us and he gently pulls us closer and says, no, you're going to come. No, you're going to come and you're going to taste and see that I am good. And so, if you're in that place where you feel convicted because perhaps this week was not a, a stellar week in terms of spending time with God and His Word this week, understand that God is not against you, He is for you. And like the Father in Luke 15, He will welcome you with a hug. And he will spend time with you as you spend time with him and his word and as you pray and as you as you grow in your relationship with God. And it's just offered to you today. It's offered to us today. May God help us to walk in obedience and, and not make excuses. But may God help us also be just overwhelmed by how good and patient our God is with us. He's good. You look at verses 1 to 17 of chapter 4 and you see that we have better resources for feelings of inadequacy than words of self-affirmation. We have God who is with us and who is for us in Christ. We have a God who is abundant in power, who is wise in his providence, and who is so amazingly patient in his love towards us. May God help us keep our gaze on him so that we can walk in obedience to him in this coming week. And let's pray. Lord God, we pray that by your spirit you would fix our gaze on Christ because we know that as we look to him we become like him and we are transformed into his image from one degree of glory to the next and all of this is by your spirit. And this is the appointed means by which you make us grow and flourish. Lord, this is the appointed means by which you make us happy Christians. Is when we stop looking at ourselves and what we have or don't have. And who we would like to be, but we're not. And what other people possess, but we don't. And instead, we look to you as this overflowing fountain of life and joy and sufficiency. And we find in you eternal life. Oh, God, please be with us and help us to have eyes of faith and feet that are quick to run in the path of obedience. And we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.